I am not completely like other people. What do you mean by that? People dislike me because I am not completely like them. And in what way are you different? I am trying to do with my life something which few people try to do. And this influences my thinking and consequently my actions. What is it you're trying to do with your life? Play the piano for people. I'm not clear. Uh, how is it that playing the piano for people has eventually resulted in your being here in the hospital? There are family members and people close to the family who are a little concerned about his mental state. As we all know, Kanye actually has talked about his mental health and the fact that he was diagnosed with um, a bipolar disorder. When he was placed on a psychiatric involuntary hold in 2016, they can place you under psychiatric or psychotropic drugs, number one. Number two, they can give you what's called electroshock, or what they say electroconvulsive therapy. There's nothing therapeutic about it, where the electricity will go through your brain. It changes your entire personality to where you will not be the same person anymore. Drugs like Respiradol, Adderall, Ritalin. All these drugs are on what's called the Drug Enforcement Agency's list as a Schedule II narcotic, meaning they are the same as crystal meth and methamphetamine and cocaine. Ritalin is legal, cocaine, and many of these other drugs are the same as these other drugs that you sell on the street. Yes, it feels different. In what way? As soon as I express the belief that I do not belong in this hospital, which is a mental hospital, then those who dislike me want to find a worse place for me. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Norman. I'm here at my no-tell motel with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hey, guys. Hi. Hey, how's Hello. it going? Good, good. Uh, this week, we're talking mental health. Mental health is a big part of the horror genre, maybe too big of a part sometimes. Um, a lot of horror movies deal with mental health, some more delicately and empathetically than others, this week, we're talking about two movies that center around mental health. First of all, we're talking Psycho, 1960, Alfred Hitchcock, The Template. And also, we're talking about Santa Sangre. Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. Santa Sangre. By Alejandro Jodorowsky. 1989. <laughs> you stole my thunder. I was going to try. Yeah. Uh, Alejandro Jodorowsky. Yeah, yeah, you got to get the Yoda. Yoda. Alejandro Jorowski. <laughs> so we want to start with the Santa Sangre, yes? Yes. Heck yeah. It's actually, I'm kind of shocked at how similar these two movies are. Yes. We, we didn't so, know yeah. how similar. This could have been our Mother's Day episode. You're a dummy, bitch. You will never know shit. Don't nobody want you. Don't nobody need you. I should have aborted your motherfucking ass because you ain't shit. As it turns out. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that too. There's a lot of mother. I never expected There's... Psycho and Santa Sangre to have so much in common. Mm-hmm. Santa Sangre, um, 1989. This is on Tubi for free. You can watch this um, with some ads. No big deal. Actually, I watched it a couple times. I had never seen this, but Dave and Kevin had been talking about it for a while. As soon as we said we were going to do a mental health episode, that name kept coming up. So I was anxious to see it. I loved it. I watched it a couple times because the first time I had a hard time following exactly what was going on. There's not a lot of standard use of plot device and narrative propulsion in this. So it, it really is laid out in a way that's not what I expect as a, as a mainstream consumer. It really, you, you really have to know what's going on. You really have to pay attention. So the second time I watched it, after looking up the plot, after watching it the first time, I was like, okay, I missed a few things. 
Um, but I love this movie. Very, very different. I would recommend it if you're looking for something different. Very avant-garde. It, it's funny. It's funny that you say that uh, this is so um, avant-garde because Alejandro Jodorowsky is known for uh, experimental avant-garde, way out there movies like Holy Mountain. Also, um, this like horror psychedelic western called El Topo. And they're both from like the 70s. He had made a movie in years. Um, and he'd been doing things like, uh, if you look at his his resume, he's written books, been like a shaman. He was a psychologist. Uh, he went to medical school, all, all these crazy things. So this is actually very normal for him. This is as mainstream as Alejandro <laughs> yeah. Jodorowsky gets. Right. This is his sellout movie. And it's funny because when you look him up, uh, and you read about his crowning achievements, um, this movie is never mentioned. Um, and I've always loved it, but compared to some of the grandiose uh, imagery in the other ones, which to me, to be honest, the avant-garde ones uh, were more about the imagery than, than the actual story. And I actually thought this one could be the, you know, the sister movie to you know, the, the Chilean version of Psycho. You're saying because of the, uh, the, the DID... Mommy issues, all that stuff. You dare disobey your mother! So it's about a child, Phoenix, who lives and performs in the circus with his performer parents. They all live in the circus. His mom leads a weird cult, and his dad is a knife thrower. His mom is also a trapeze artist. Um, he witnesses, the child witnesses a gruesome, traumatic scene between his parents at a young age, ends up in an institution and then years later leaves the institution to reunite with his mother and seek, I guess you could call it revenge initially, but the bloodletting sort of extends beyond you know, what, what you would think of as revenge. Kevin, how did you, you knew about that. You'd already seen this, right? No, I had not. I think what you're talking about is, is Dave. Dave threw this out super early. I had never heard of Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky, however you want to say it. There's a, a lot to, to look up on this guy. It's amazing. And like you said, Dave, this movie didn't doesn't really come up a lot, but I found this great article that sort of took the, to the perspective viewer through a list of his movies to start with, and this was the first one because the article also said, like you did, Dave, this one makes the most sense. It, it's the most linear storyline that he has done. A lot of interesting people are involved with this. He wrote this with Claudio Argento, who is Dario Argento's brother. And it has been compared to Psycho in the past. I think <clears throat> this movie's brilliant. I think it's totally worth a watch. And I think the, the most compelling part of this movie is in the reunion of the, the son and mother. I thought that that scene where like all he got out of the institution and they're all getting the circus people back together reminding me of like blues brothers when they're they're getting the band back together At the beginning of the movie it kind of had that vibe where they're just getting one by one they're going to they're still in the same old spots they've been in for years this kid's grown up and these people are still wearing the same clothes and they haven't aged <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it was uh the young version of uh phoenix and the old version are his two sons play those those characters the pimp is a third son because yes, I kept watching, actually the pimp is his brother. I kept watching the movie like, it's, man, it's, they, uh, they really cast some people that look a lot like each other. Like that really does look like an older version. And then looking it up being like, oh, because I was really confused when the pimp came into the movie. I thought that uh, Alex, who plays the older Phoenix, was playing a double role. So I was trying to watch the movie like, okay, why is the same actor playing older Phoenix, but also the pimp? And then finally I was like, fuck this. I need to pause the movie and look at the casting. I felt like this whole movie was just one big whose line is it anyway skit. Like when you come in in the back with the arms and then you have to like do... <laughs> Apparently you guys haven't seen... That beautiful I know, piece of uh, television. I think that's un underselling it a bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, what a weird fucking movie! I every time something odd happened, I was like, "Oh, that was that was pretty odd." And then something else would happen that was way worse in the creep factor, and I was like, "Oh, okay, sure, yeah, he's got a mom. He loves his mom. We all love our mom. Sure. Oh, you're the arms. Okay, yeah, definitely." 
I liked his fake nails. Um, I'm, it definitely made me miss mine. I've been in having these quarantine nails. So that really made me feel a certain type of way. Other than that, oh, it I was think we just... Need to, I mean, we need to talk about the arms. We can't just make these arm mentions and not... <laughs> these arm I think jokes. we can give away. It's oh. in the trailer that the son, the mother loses her arms. The son uh, acts as her arms. Like a... What are those, like... Uh, goddess things with people dance and they put their arms behind you and they yeah. like that kind of vibe yeah like it's, a, like it's a, almost a it's almost like a ventriloquism thing you've probably seen it before where one person comes up behind the other stands behind the other person as cat said whose line is whose line is it anyway they do this one person stands behind another person and puts their arms in front of them and acts as that person's arms so that's what the son is doing for the mother after he gets out of the institution. And she is the leader of this church, uh, this religion built around a girl who's, who was raped and her arms were cut off. Uh, the Saint Blood, uh, or the Holy Blood uh, church that gets, that gets like bulldozed. She has the church. She still has both arms when she leads the church, worshiping the girl without arms. And then it's not until later that she herself also loses both her arms. And makes her a martyr to her son, especially. She's yes. married to, to Orgo, who David mentioned, who somehow seems to be the, the leader of this, this circus troupe that Phoenix and his parents are a part of. So the mother is the trapeze artist slash Santa Sangre priestess or what have you. She's married to Orgo. There is a lady who is literally only ever given the name Tattoo Lady, I believe, who comes in and she's fucking around with Orgo and the mom finds out, confronts him. And basically he's like, fuck you. I'm going to cut your arms off. What I need to unpack here is how the hell was Orgo getting so much? Cause that dude is disgusting. He was a hypnotist. Oh. That's what he was doing with the knife. And yeah, that's, that's why true. when she was like pissed about the tattoo woman throwing her vagina in that guy's face, quite literally. But his style though. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it was the hypnotism or if it was the swag. The I Joe mean, Exotic he did have a swag. outfit yeah. that he had on. <laughs> yeah, he's like the circus <laughs> Joe Exotic. Yeah, I made a note. I was like, Joe Exotic has definitely seen this movie, and that's where he got his wardrobe from because whew, so, so many rhinestones. We're talking about a big fat man covered in rhinestones and sequins. Pleather. And he's always got his chest out or no shirt on, mm. and he's got this big eagle tattoo uh, that is uh, in their family somehow this sign of um, manhood, and he's also obsessed with America. My favorite part was the—I uh, well, don't know what kind of hospital he was in exactly, but it was basically him and a bunch of kids with Down syndrome. It seemed like it yeah, was an institution was. strictly for Down syndrome. Yeah, but the field trip was my favorite part. Of course, uh, of it was. The, of course, it was your favorite part. Why? They, they had just, a great time. Let's just drop Ooh. the kids off. We're going to fuck in the car. You guys go ahead in there. Oh, I this pimp so shows up. Some pimp grabs him. Let's get a bunch of then, Down uh, Syndrome kids high on coke or whatever he was giving them. Yeah, oh that God. was... And giving prostitutes. The, the movie sounds fucked. It is. But it's also, <laughs> it's also beautiful. Dave, you talked yeah. about a scene where an elephant dies. And they have this amazing imagery of this elephant and then a bunch of locals just rip the casket open and start eating the elephant and slaughtering it for meat. Sounds horrific. Looks great. Mm. The Santa Sangre <laughs> scene. It, real elephant. What? That? The, they used a real dead elephant in this. Really? And, and, they, and they made that giant uh, casket for the elephant and put it inside it and they shot the the uh, dead elephant in the casket off cliff that all at, was actual things that happened. Wow. Wow. I was thinking that <laughs> Alejandro Jodorowsky got in trouble for, uh, he got pretty much canceled for El Topo, uh, where there's a scene of people are marching through the streets and there's 500 crucified skinned goats in the scene and he actually used goats. Well, he, he is kind of crazy. Like you said, Dave, he's listed as like a comic writer. Um, he officiated Marilyn Manson's wedding. Um, this guy, I don't know if he's really good at any of these things, but his list of accomplishments or talents is vast. But what I will say, again, to go back to the beginning, 
of my rant is this film is shot beautifully. There's a scene at the end where a bunch of, we, we suppose, are victims of phoenixes are rising up from the grave. And it's one of my favorite movie scenes that I've seen in a horror movie in recent years. I think he knows how to film a movie and he knows how to make it look good. And I think he raises a lot of questions lot, and some people don't like that as much, uh, leaving something open-ended, but um, I like that, especially when you have all the weird imagery. I think that leaving things to the imagination as far as the dialogue and the plot and the setting are kind of good because it creates this this world that you know you you don't know if it's real or not i mean a, a lot of a lot of this i think hinges on the idea of the unreliable narrator there are a lot of things that by the end of the movie obviously weren't real but were in the mind of the protagonist so it's kind of hard to sort out like what is a literal scene and what you know, was, was his imagination. Yeah. He's definitely, he's a wild card director. Um, he just, it, it reminds me of like anyone today I would compare him to would be Gaspar. No, it's just, um, you know, pushing everything to the limit. And like I said, this is his lightest work. <laughs> <laughs> great kill scenes, great gore. I loved yeah. all the kill scenes, all the stabbings. I mean, the blood is really gushing out of there. Um, <laughs> Very well, much is... horror style. My only complaint about the blood would be that this movie has like one of the big tells of of fake blood, cheap fake blood, is that it dries pink. Uh, maybe that's intentional in this because you do see a lot of pink. But like once the blood dries, it just looks like very thin pink water stain. Doesn't look mm -hmm. like blood at all. But when when the when the bloodletting is happening, very good. It's very legit. Good. Yeah, I went. Um, I was starting to watch this movie and I feel like I made it pretty far in and I was like, why, why is this all, you know, why is this a mental health horror pick? Like what, what is happening? And then the first stabbing scene happened and I was like, oh, that's, there it is. Yeah, I was initially uh, rated NC-17. Apparently there's parts cut out of the parents or of Orgo and the mom scene and practically the entire scene of the sex worker being killed was completely edited out. And mm. watching the version, you can tell. yeah, watching the version that we got, you could easily tell that there were some quick fixes to uh, <laughs> cut out some of the more gory scenes and get this down to uh, a rated R. What was the scene about where the guy, the stranger, tears his ear off in front of? Oh no, no Al point. Alma? So yeah, we haven't even yeah. talked about yeah. Alma, who is a huge. That's part some of this game movie. right there. Alma is the young, um, nonverbal, hard of hearing character, mm -hmm. and for some reason, when she escapes, she's been sort of sold into um, prostitution by the tattooed woman. Long story, um, but there's a scene <laughs> where a guy, like she's escaping, and a guy kind of confronts her in the street. I, I guess he's trying to like kidnap her or something and he rips his ear off and like tries it's to feed it to yeah, her. Like tries to, yeah, have her eat it. Yeah. yeah just before yeah. quarantine, just before quarantine, I got my passport and I, I, I shouldn't travel because of stuff like this. I watch this and I take my social cues in these movies. So like, you know, I'm just going to rip my ear off. I put it in a girl's mouth Go on a date with me. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what we're supposed to do it here? Where does where is this movie set? We you said Spain. I thought it was Mexico. Yeah, Mexico. I don't know. Wherever they are, apparently you're allowed to have a a full grown tree in your room at the insane asylum, which that's a first. Yeah, that was a very weird transition. Also, where he went from her non communicative communicative non communicative person who's eating fish like Gollum to a full functioning member of society and also stage performer. Like that was a very weird, like there was no in between. It, it was after the night out with all the Down syndrome kids when they yes. went to the movie and the pimp gave them all cocaine and there's that whole street dance scene. It was the next, yes. it was after that, that he suddenly came out of his, uh, um, uh, um, uh, I thought it was a pretty good circus. I would go to the circus. You got the, the mime that walks the, the flaming tightrope. Mm -hmm. uh, you got the flying trapeze. You have the woman hanging by her hair, her ponytail, swinging up above. Uh, I've never seen that at the circus. 
Uh, another really weird scene was the whole Invisible Man thing. Yeah, that was more sad, I feel like. He's like, I just want to be invisible. Why isn't my science working? He wanted to hide behind his mom. Yeah, he's watching the old, the old school Invisible Man movie. Yeah, so I guess, right, so he can be a better... If he can be better hands for his mom if nobody sees him. So he's watching the original Invisible Man movie. He's got his face all wrapped in bandages, and he's drinking. He's trying to create a potion that will make him invisible <laughs> so he can be the ultimate arms and hands for his, his dear mother. Well, this episode is mental that, health. Uh, yeah. That Orgo was also in uh, one of the stars in It's Alive. Oh, really? Um, and he was actually kind of like a heartthrob, like in like the 60s and 70s in movies. I looked up his, uh, yes, his I, I do IMDb page. Yeah, I do remember and reading And some that. like handsome, he's like looking like a cowboy. <laughs> um, and he looks like a cowboy in this too, but he looks like a Joe Exotic. like <laughs> An uh, urban mix. cowboy, if you will. Well, and we can't, we can't forget about the fact that, you know, there is a dick burned off with acid in this movie. Yes, there yes. is. That's what starts this whole this whole chain of events here. You know, it leads to the arms, it leads to the traumatized boy. That was really the catalyst, you know. The dick bite of this movie is the dick burned in liquid acid. Yeah, and all this stuff happens and no the police never show up. You can sever both someone's both their arms, you can burn someone's dick off with acid and they're running through the street bleeding. Um and you never see any police until the very end. Well, and it's, I think the most telling aspect of Orgo is while his kid is looking on, he's like, I couldn't possibly live without my dick. I'm just going to kill myself. Well, he, he also, I mean, he also just cut off his wife's arms. So I, it's to me, well, see, again, we're going to spoil the very last scene. I think there are reasons. There, I don't think that he killed himself because his dick was dissolved by acid. I think that there was a bigger reason that he killed himself, sort of a, a traditional style where you do something and then you do yourself after. You know what I mean? Uh, I, I really took that scene as, a, well, my dick's gone, so well, I got nothing to lose. It's a murder-suicide. You, you're the true crime guy. You know about murder-suicide. I really like the um, piano scene, too. There's a scene where he has to play, like, when he's doing his mom's arms, the tasks get progressively more ridiculous. Like, he has to sew for her, you know, so she... <laughs> yeah, the no, knitting she, yeah, she pretends that she's knitting, <laughs> but it's just, it's he, he has to know how to knit, so he's knitting for her. And then there's a scene where she wants to practice her piano, uh, and she sits at the piano, and then, of course, it's just him behind her, being her arms playing the piano and she berates him no grace no style you got to move my fingers more elegantly it's really good and then, <laughs> then later on they show him playing i think my favorite part is that she makes sure that he has matching like sleeves to whatever yes. um, outfit she's wearing you know so you gotta make sure you have the baby blue silk satin with like the feathers on the end so it goes with the rest of her, you know, ensemble. I thought those scenes could have come off like so much more cheesy. And, and the way that we're describing them right now, I think probably the first vision that pops into your head is like, oh, that probably comes off it. I thought they were really well done. I thought he somehow got those scenes across as pretty legit, like pretty affecting. Instead of like you literally could have laughed at them had they totally been done a little differently. I thought the, the tattooed lady I don't know if anyone else noticed, but um, when she was doing her striptease part and her thighs are like clapping together, you can see that the the tattoo, however they did it, is coming off <laughs> and like running down her thigh. <laughs> yeah, the tattoos were not done very well. Like his dad's giving him a tattoo with just a knife and yeah. when it's healed it's beautifully colored and there's like gradient and it's like I'm like that's not how tattoos work buds the kid wasn't <laughs> the kid wasn't very convincing in his portrayal of pain when he's getting his entire chest tattooed by his dad i thought he could have been a little better at 
exhibiting how excruciating that would be. He's tied to a chair, and he's having a tattoo carved into his flesh with a giant knife. I like that Jodorowsky, uh, he makes these really messed up films, but the most messed up thing about it is when you go to the IMDb, you see that it's like his brother and his children, and you know, because I want to do stuff like that. I, I want to make these really messed up movies and just have like my mom in it, or you know, my daughter, or my girlfriend. And it, you know, it gives me hope. Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm crazy. Crazy for feeling so We also watched Psycho this week, the Ooh. 1960 Alfred Hitchcock classic and boilerplate film. Kat, this was your idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so mental health. I was thinking of some ideas to pick, but then my brain just went, kept going back to the, the OG mental health situation, which is Norman Bates in Psycho. You start off thinking that this is going to be a very different film, or at least I did. Um, I think I rewatched, I don't know the, the last time I watched this movie, probably too young to kind of realize what was going on. Um, but yeah, like when I gave it a rewatch, I was like, this could be a very different film the way it starts. Like you think you're going to follow, you know, Janet Lee as, as Marion. How do you pronounce that beautiful name? Marion Crane. Marion. Yeah. Like Marie kind of. Um, yeah. So you follow her and you think, you know, she's like the leading lady. She was like the most famous, you know, the top build situation. So you go and think you're going to follow this weird crime spree that she's not a spree, this weird crime thing that she's involved herself in. And then you kind of go from there and get lost in the world of the Bates motel, which takes many a twist many a turn um it holds up so well like not once during this film was i tired or bored not once was i like fucking around on my phone like i was like eyes glued to the screen alfred hitchcock i don't know why i haven't watched every single film because this is obviously a masterpiece but it really takes that character um anthony perkins he's so likable like at first when he's just like chatting with her in the hotel and you're like, this guy's fine. He just has some mommy issues. Like it's whatever. You dare disobey your mother! Little do we know those fucking issues go real deep. Part of the thing that's scary about this, one of the things that you don't see a lot uh, is uh, Marion, Marion Crane uh, is basically trying to make herself anonymous. She's going... Uh, and putting down fake names and trying to leave no trace. She's selling her car, getting a new one. And when you do this, how is someone going to find out what happened to you when you're trying to make yourself, uh, you know, a, a phantom? So I thought that part of it was cool because it added a a level of uh, stress, you know, uh, because she's also very paranoid and very scared, um, like kind of like the worst person to commit a a crime it seems like because it is just internally beating her up the whole time she's driving and, and I love those scenes where it's just her face and the conversations between people that she's imagining are happening I hadn't seen this since I was like 12 years old so I really only remembered the classic shocker scenes which mm -hmm. are not nearly as shocking now of course, um, after a lifetime of these movies. But now I've seen it like 2.75 more times. And uh, <laughs> I, I would call myself a disciple. We all go a little mad sometimes. A lot of great quotes in this movie that I've been oh, trying man, to yeah. commit to memory. A boy's best friend is his mother. You know, the, the funny <laughs> thing about this, yeah, a son, is no, a son is no substitute for a lover. Um, the, but the thing about this movie to me is that it manages at, at the same time it's both like the boilerplate standard for so much of what we now mm -hmm. take for granted as just you know regular horror suspense thriller filmmaking this is pretty much all of it and yet 
it's so much different than what I'm used to. It does things a lot differently. A lot of things it does a lot differently. It takes chances that you don't see. It's almost like the, the, the most literal boilerplate stuff, yes, has been handed down and, and now is standard practice, but so many of the things that Hitchcock did and so many of the ways that he did them are still very, very different. And when you watch it now, being used to more contemporary fare, there is a lot of subversion of expectation in this and the history of how this got made. Pretty interesting. Kevin, I'm sure you have done your due diligence on <laughs> the making of this movie. Yes, uh, if we want. I mean, I can use my first time around the table to uh, take the next 35 minutes. But here's what I will say. <laughs> I'll give you three. This, this <laughs> start the timer, my friend. So Dave and Kat just this hit it on, on the head. I hadn't revisited this movie for a long time as well. And it's not what you what you traditionally think of. This is kind of viewed as the original slasher, but it's almost like an episode of Dateline. Like Dave said, you it starts off as this like office heist. Janet Lee, Marion Crane, is in a relationship with a man. They're not married. And it's 1960. So you can't have boyfriends and be fucking in 1960 unless you're married. No. So they're trying to hide it. She comes across 40 grand, which today seems like not that big of a deal. Well, I mean, fucking A. <clears throat> for any four of us on this, on this 40 call. Grand. 40 grand. In, in, Chuck, in, bar, 40 Chuck grand. change, baby. <laughs> Chuck change. Well, in, today, in today's money, that would be almost 400K. So she's on the run. And then, like you said, Dave, she's doing all this stuff to keep it hidden. She just happens to end up at the Bates Motel. But how would you ever know where she's at? And then from there, there's these other parts of the plot where people are tracking her down. So I watched this movie a couple times leading up to the episode and was like, this is literally like listening to like I can hear Keith Morrison from Dateline narrating this episode or narrating this movie. But you are right, Trent. <clears throat> Very difficult movie to make for a legend like Alfred Hitchcock. This is well into his career as being established as one of the finest that would ever film a movie. But Paramount hated the book. Tons of studios had already passed on this book from 1959 by Robert Block. And Hitchcock gave up his director's fee and instead pulled a brilliant move and said, tell you what, I'll just take a percentage of the ownership rights to the film. He had to agree to do it in black and white because it was done so much cheaper back then. Um, so Hitchcock had to pull a lot of strings to have this movie made, which is astounding. Obviously, it, it was made for under a million dollars, which I realized, you know, back in 1960, I'm sure 800 or 900 K, which the rumor budget was, is still pretty substantial. But think about the fact that one of the most influential movies of all time tried to be blocked by the major studio. It was made for under one million dollars. And then it went ahead and made 50 million dollars at the box office. So Hitchcock got the last laugh. And then just a real quick, Hitchcock was famous for doing cameos in all of his movies. And there's a scene when the owner of the, the bank or the loan company that Marion Crane works for, the owner and, and a client are walking in early in the movie. You see Alfred Hitchcock standing just outside on the sidewalk in his trademark hat, just kind of looking up. And the reason he did it is, I believe the the office mate of Marion Crane was Hitchcock's daughter, and he wanted an opportunity to do oh. his cameo while she was on set, and they could hang. Yeah, Smart. and uh, ironically, everything that he had to go through to make this movie, not only did it become his most successful movie of all time, but because he had to put up his own money, it was also his most personally financially successful movie of all time. He himself made like $15 million back because he had had to put up all the money uh, to make it. And it was like a, a worldwide, people were standing in line, you know, lined up around the theaters to see this thing, which is pretty awesome. And I think, I think, I think the director's fee that we were just talking about that he gave up was like 250 K. So you're right. Trent. Right. He gave up a 250 K director's fee for the studios to then keep all the money from whatever that film. And I'm talking like literal physical film that he got the rights to. And he made almost $20 million instead of 250 K. Which is weird. Cause you alluded to, he had already made vertigo. He had already made dial M for murder North by Northwest. He had already established himself as a giant. 
And yet, like, nobody had any faith in him, I guess. So he makes this black and white low-budget thing, makes the most money he's ever made. And then the next movie, he makes The Birds. Like, I feel like <laughs> after this, he just, he just went crazy. Like, all right, I made the, uh, the psycho incest movie. Now I'm going to make The mm. Birds movie. Who cares? You make, you make Psycho, then all of a sudden, now Paramount or Universal or whoever, they're not even going to look at the script. They're just mm-hmm. going to be like, what do you want, Alfred? Okay, go ahead, bud. The birds? Oh, sounds <laughs> and then good. We get the, then we get the birds. <laughs> I, think, I think we really need to talk about Anthony Perkins. I learned a lot more about Anthony Perkins watching this movie now, researching him. I had no idea what an interesting person Anthony Perkins was himself. Um, I'm not sure what kind of success he had prior to, to Psycho. We know that Janet Lee was a big star. And he was she, a name. He was a name. Was he? And this is yeah. this is almost uh, like another movie we talked about recently, which also could incredibly uh, fall into the mental health. Carrie. This is another movie where everybody knows the seminal scene. It's almost the marketing. It's the poster for it. So kind of like Carrie, the poster of Carrie is her soaked in blood at the prom. Everyone knows the shower scene in Psycho. But... I never really paid a ton of attention to Anthony Perkins. One, he's super Ted Bundy in this, like so charming and innocent. I mean, you can picture him walking out to help somebody with their bags with his arm in a fake sling, being like, I just live here with my mother. I think I think the, the, the soundtrack in this movie is integral uh, as the setting. It's as scary as anything that happens on camera, um, and it's... It's legendary, you know, it's synonymous with, you know, people being crazy if you hear that. I, 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 I. It's almost like, uh, like those very <laughs> simple calling cards of horror. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Halloween, Halloween, piano, Well, same thing. Yeah, well, speaking of Halloween, uh, Janet Lee is, uh, is the mom Jamie of... Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, mom. Yeah, Jamie Curtis. Yeah. Oh, shit. Jamie Lee Curtis's mom. I didn't mom. know that. Yeah. What a fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. They start, they were both in The Fog, John Carpenter's The Fog together, both Janet Lee and Jamie Lee Curtis. And they were in uh, Halloween H2O, which we don't have to talk about ever again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They, they, it's a, it's a intergenerational scream queen family. I would, what I wouldn't give to be a part of that fucking family. Yeah. I just like to be like a third cousin or something and be like, can I come to a fucking birthday party? Let me check out my 23andMe. See what I've got a uh, brewing. My favorite part of the soundtrack is when she's driving. Really powerful scenes where she's she's playing back in her mind imagined conversations that people are having when she's not there. Once they discover what she's done, it's, it's very it's a very classic like anxiety thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're like trying to imagine like oh she's playing all these conversations and the the headlights are in her rearview mirror and that violet it's like this most it's just this relentless anxiety sound i really love that the amount of times i've had those kinds of conversations in my own brain and it's just like i just look normal like there's not a fucking hurricane happening inside is i can't even count yeah i thought that was really effective and uh pretty relatable and I think we talk about, you know, Trent, you said, you know, the shocking things in this movie 60 years later aren't as shocking as before. But what we do need to consider is what Hitchcock put into it in terms of his craft. So we, we've talked on the space episode about, you know, respecting the fact that Ridley Scott made this movie in space so many years ago that was way ahead of its time or what Kubrick did or what Pink Floyd is able to do recording an album in the 60s that sounds better than anything made on 2020 technology. The shower scene alone is 78 different cuts. And every it took them an entire week just to film that one scene. And the devices they had to make back then to get the, the single shot of the shower head coming straight down at the camera and some of the techniques they had to use. I think this is why Hitchcock's a legend because people that knew about making film and certainly back then, they see what he put into this movie and to take a week to film 
one scene must have seemed insane to everybody at the time, but to have it be one of the most legendary scenes, not just in a horror film, but of all film, kind of shows you the the work put into this film. I think this was even, like, the fact that this movie was in black and white, like, I feel like doesn't make a difference for how striking it is visually. Like, even that scene with, you know, the shower scene, like, with the blood, you know, going, falling down the drain, like, you don't need color to be, like, in awe of that fucking beauty you know um how about the um the parlor dinner scene shadows play a huge role in this being black and white it's a lot of shadow work and there's a scene where norman and marianne are having marion are having i think it's marianne having dinner in the um in the parlor as he puts it off of his office and it's filled with stuffed birds because of course He's a, a hobbyist taxidermy, so he has all of these mounted stuffed birds all over the room, and the shadows of all these birds. Uh, again, I, I think there's some foreshadow here. This movie, there's a lot of bird stuff in here, and the very next movie that Hitchcock would make would be birds. So clearly he had a bird on the brain during this movie. There's birds, there's pictures of birds on the wall. I read that Anthony Perkins was trying to act like a bird and you see the way he runs down the stairs he's flapping his <laughs> arms he's very sort of bird like yeah which is is another uh, point I, I noticed too not only is he sort of being bird like but he does a very classic like I feel like there's a way that people run in old Hitchcock movies and a specific a specific running style <laughs> it's very like limbs akimbo you know, waving around, and then they run toward the camera, and the camera is like on the ground, so they run right up to the camera, you know, and the camera, and then mm-hmm. they look dramatically to one side. You know, it's a lot of that. So you get that in this, it's pretty good. I thought that you know the the seventy eight shots in the the shower scene, they must have been to not have any nudity because yes, they it was just like I've never seen a movie that old walk that line so close where like any second you thought you were going to see something, but everything's hidden and it it was, it was very tasteful and it was uh, very good. It was very criticized at the time. So back when this was made, the MPAA didn't exist. There was something called the production code and I'm using air quotes and it was something (laughs) that was sent out agreed upon it wasn't a law or anything it was just agreed upon by all the studios that here's what you will not show and this movie hitchcock had to do a bunch of different cuts because they thought they could see her boob at one point they thought that the quick scene where you see the knife go towards the abdomen they thought that that was too violent that it showed an actual stab and you're not you weren't supposed to show that at the time some other shit that Hitchcock had to deal with. This is the first time a flushing toilet was seen in a mainstream yes. film in the United yeah. States. Wow. So, yeah. so his fighting of the production code, actually, this film actually had a lot to do with the creation of an official MPAA ratings board. Before that, it was just a bunch of probably old white men saying, don't show any upskirt. Make sure you can't see a titty. And you better not show a knife go in. And <laughs> well, by the way, don't you dare flush a toilet. I mean, because every single Dracula movie that preceded this, there's a stabbing in the heart of the stake. So, I mean, how does that work? Yeah, but work? that's an, an evil being, though. If you, I feel like if you're doing it to, like, murder, like, the evil, that's fine. But you can't do it to, like, a pretty white girl. You know? Remind me not to watch any movies before 1960. Just, uh, <laughs> just, just having Janet Lee in her bra in the first scene was a huge deal. Was scandalous. Yeah, in in a hotel room bed with somebody that she wasn't married to. Um, I most of the research that I did on this one surrounded the expression "hot as fresh milk." In a very <laughs> early scene in the real estate office. <laughs> Guy comes in who is buying this property. He's paying $40,000, as we said. And the first thing he says when he walks in, boy, hot as fresh milk in here. And after like the second or third time, I'm like, what in the hell is hot as fresh milk? Get out the udder, bro. Makes, makes that hot tea. That's it. I tried to research the epistemology of the expression hot as fresh milk. It doesn't exist anywhere 
there's there's no history of hot as fresh. They don't utter a word about it. As a legendary ad lib, just a legendary ad lib. Yep, it's just it's only in this movie. And I guess what he means, you nailed it, Dave. When the milk comes out of the cow's udder, <laughs> it is, hold on, it is 101 degrees Fahrenheit oh, when shit. it leaves the udder. It's oh, hot. And as soon as it hits the bucket, it immediately cools to, to room temperature. So that's mm. what he meant by hot as fresh milk. I thought that I had told you guys so many things that you never needed to know on this show, but Trent, <laughs> yeah, that's, you that's, have that's, one. Yeah, that's a really useful <laughs> Thanks, bud. 101 Fahrenheit, guys. Um, so I, I have a confession. Wasn't that, that a Bon Jovi album? That I had never seen this from, from beginning to end. I had just seen the legendary wow. scenes. I always talk a lot of crap about older movies, and they're hard to get through, especially black and whites, but Hitchcock stuff is always very on point. Mm-hmm. I can't, I, all I've been thinking about is how we can do, how I can slip another Hitchcock, how soon... I can try to get the birds on the show because I haven't seen that in a long time and it's so crazy. I'd love to do a Hitchcock episode soon. Yeah, we should. I'm on the Hitchcock train. I think talking about uh, the shower scene, I think the scene after the shower scene of Norman cleaning up is actually Mm -hmm. more powerful than the shower scene itself. Watching him come down from the house and realize that she's dead and go through all these motions of getting the mop bucket, pulling the shower curtain down to wrap the body. I think that entire scrubbing the blood, I think that whole sequence is actually more powerful than the shower scene itself. Maybe not back in 1960, but I've seen plenty of people get stabbed in the shower uh, in modern horror. Yeah, the whole world has spoiled this movie because I there were so many things that I had to put myself in the position like, all right, I got to pretend I've never seen this before. You know, even though I hadn't seen the movie, yeah. I knew all the spoilers and I had to pretend like, okay, I have to pretend that I don't know that him and his mother are the same person. I have to pretend that I don't know that she's going to die in that shower. And mm-hmm. well, the, I, was, I felt a little deprived of the experience because of how, you know, I, iconic this movie is in in film. It's really hard, but I would I would point out that as far as the shower scene... I think as transgressive as the violence was for the time, the fact that that happens less than halfway or right around halfway through the movie, that's not Mm -hmm. the climax of the movie. And the lead actress, the star of the whole thing, dies right there, 45 some minutes into it. You would never see that. I mean, that would never happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, where are they going to go from here? Because I hadn't seen it. I thought that that was the climax. So we're like halfway through. I'm like, now what's going to go on? You know? And then I realized that um, her sister, who looks just like her, who is helping yeah. her lover uh, investigate, those two uh, had a thing. I, I think that he was moving yes. in. That's one thing that we didn't see in yes, Psycho 2. would have been nice to see their relationship <laughs> develop a little bit because we know it happened. Oh, it did. In, in, in Psycho 2, um, her, so his last name was... Loomis? He was Sam Loomis. Yeah, Sam Loomis. Mm-hmm. So the boyfriend's name was Sam Loomis. So there you go, John Carpenter Halloween. Uh, in Psycho 2, Marion Crane's sister is clearly, uh, has been married to Sam Loomis because her last name is now Loomis. Oh. And they have oh. a kid together and it's this whole like re- revenge plot against Anthony Perkins who some fucking how gets out of his institution and gets to go back to the house. Did you like two? Um, I liked yeah. it as a kid. I know I didn't understand it, but I liked it. It was like, oh, they kill people. <laughs> Great movie. I did. I know I liked it. I thought, I mean, for 23 years later, I mean, I watched it. I watched Psycho a few times and then went right into Psycho 2. So I didn't have that 23-year gap between, between movies. I had time this week to branch out, and I decided to spend my time on the 1998 Gus Van Zandt Almost shot for shot. It's not quite, but it's very close to shot for shot, mm-hmm. line for line, star-studded <laughs> remake. And don't Vince? It's not just Vince Vaughn, Anne Heche, Viggo Mortensen, what? Julian Moore, yep. Robert Forster is in it. I mean, everybody in this. Will hold up, hold up. William H Macy is the PI. 
Um, it, these people in 1998, like it's even more star-studded now. A lot of these people were earlier in their careers, and now it's like these guys are all A-listers. I thought it was not good as a movie itself, but as <laughs> as an experiment. And and Gus Van Sant has said as much. You know, this was an experiment to see what if I took all these great actors and I just literally remade the same movie. How would it go? I don't think it went that great. But if you've watched the original a couple times, I think it's really interesting and fun to watch this crazy remake. I agree. And it's not black and white in color. No, this no. is, yeah, this is. Full color. That's, what, that's, what drew, that's why I saw that one before the original, because I was like, oh, it's black and white. I, got, I don't want to watch the black and white. Like, I just have a hard time. Like Some of the stuff that's in black and white, I didn't realize that he had made color movies before this and that stylistically he just changed it up for this one i thought it was made in an era where black and white was the only option <laughs> well i feel like we could we could do a, a separate podcast series we could do a spin-off series just about either of these two movies psycho or santa sangre we could do a multi-part spin-off um by the way psycho is a rental right now on pretty much all platforms um I think that for me, the the main thing about Psycho, beyond all the stuff that we've talked about already, everyone in this movie is wrong about everything. All of the motivations that people try to divine from other people, the money, the theft, everything that everyone thinks from the PI to the local cop to Sam and Lila, they're all wrong. They're all totally distracted. The characters themselves have fallen prey to this uh, misdirection in every direction. They don't even know that, you know, the money is in the swamp at this point. It's just subversive on every level to me. I think that the the thing that ran through these two movies, and, and you mentioned Carrie about, like, the, the parents making sure that the world does not corrupt their kid that they end up making them crazy. Uh, and, and those are the things that come up in horror a lot. It's either someone who's very sheltered uh, or a traumatic event like PTSD. But those are the things that come up usually with, uh, with horror movies and mental, mental illness. illness. He calls me crazy. He calls me crazy. 